a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for joining us today. I am so glad that you have joined the growing crowd of wrong thinkers. And I want to mention that the show is brought to you as it is each day at this time by Firesteel.com, as well as by my friends at the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can find them at staplesmortgage.com. I'll be telling you more about both of these fine sponsors coming up in just a bit. I want to start with a quick plea. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, and I know some people want to listen to it as it's streaming live. That's that's fine, but the podcast is so easy. You just click on the RSS feed, and it will uh, it will automatically notify you every time I post a new episode. Makes it easy for you. There's a nice little donate feature on there. Uh, I sing for my supper, in a sense. I can't carry a tune, but this is what I do, and this is <laughs> this is how I try to create value in the world. If you are so inclined, I would ask you, please consider becoming a monthly donor. You can do it for as little as 99 cents a month to uh, whatever you are comfortable with. But uh, I appreciate each and every donation. I treat each and every dollar as if it were sacred because there is a sense of purpose and mission behind what I'm, what I'm doing. It's not just about, uh, please help me fund my new Porsche so that... I can fit in with the rest of the, the the crowd, you know, Tad and Biff and everybody at the country club. No, there's there's a sense of mission. Actually, this is going to play into uh, what we talk about in this hour. I want to start with a little follow-up on a uh, video that I shared a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember the Ben Swan video, which showed numerous, as in at least a half dozen different scientific studies, which showed that face masks are largely ineffective at preventing the transmission of viruses? Now, don't take that as, therefore, you should not wear a face mask. Just understand it's it's solid data that shows it's not the panacea that it's being made out to be. So when you see things like, oh, I don't know, the woman there in Melbourne, Australia, being seized by the throat and taken to the ground and arrested and manhandled by the police because she was walking down the street without wearing a face mask, maybe we should question that narrative a little bit more about how, hey, you should be wearing this or otherwise you are literally a murderer going out there killing people by breathing your air without some kind of a covering over you. Well, that video that Ben Swan put out, which I thought was well done in in the, the same sense that all of his videos are, are very thoroughly researched, fact-checked. If he's, if he's wrong about something, he'll clarify it or he'll, he'll come back and make the, the necessary correction, something you don't see many journalists do. But apparently the uh, fact checkers and the narrative managers on Facebook and other places have targeted that video as false. Now, would you care to know the reason why? (laughs) I'm going to let Ben Swan explain it. He has a new video out, but check out the explanation that he offers at the beginning of that video. Here's what he has to say about uh, the one that the fact-checkers have got their teeth into. Well, Facebook's so-called fact-checkers have struck again, this time claiming that my report, which showed that science proves that wearing a face mask in public does very little, if anything at all, to prevent the spread of a virus, is untrue. They say that report was false. Fake news, they claim, simply because they say the data is old. They didn't refute the data, they just say it's old. Well, guess what? Today we're going to show you a study that isn't old. In fact, it's not even a year old, not even six months old. 
old. It's not even 60 days old, and yet it's a study from the CDC and the WHO that proves face masks do not prevent the spread of a virus. Facebook fact checkers, hold on to your seats. I'm Ben Swan, and this is Truth in Media. Okay, so I'm going to let you just check out the video for yourself. I, I was going to play some video excerpts. Um, I, I would rather that you actually find 15 minutes of you to actually the video is 14 minutes and 16 seconds long. I think it's worth your time to just find a quiet moment. Watch this for yourself and, and make up your own mind. It's very interesting. And I, again, I think Ben Swan is on to something. He, by the way, he also is he's launching a new media platform, which is, I think, hopefully... A great start for an end run around some of these fact checkers and narrative controllers that are doing their best to shepherd us in a particular direction. See, I know that there's there's this idea that, uh, well, you know, every, everything's been politicized with COVID. And that's the strongest evidence I can think of is that we actually have narrative managers who are out there trying to keep us on target as opposed to, look, I have better information. Let me share this better information. But no, what they're trying to do is either tear down or create doubts or, in some cases, just outright yank, take it off the uh, the particular platform, be it YouTube or Twitter or, or Facebook or, or something else, to prevent you from seeing it. And maybe I'm oversimplifying this. Maybe I'm exaggerating it when I, when I take this approach, but... If someone else has to decide what you are allowed to read, what you are allowed to hear, what you are allowed to see, what gives them that prerogative? Well, now, Brian, this is a, that's a private uh, business. That's what. It's a platform. They can do whatever they choose. Okay. You know, from a private property standpoint, yeah, you got me there. It's their platform. They can do what they choose. Now, answer this question for me. Why would they need to prevent you from examining an unpopular or perhaps even uh, partially wrong, maybe totally wrong point of view. Why is it their prerogative to stop you or to prevent you from examining a point of view that does not jive with what they think is right? Yeah, that one's a little tougher to, to argue, right? Why is it so important that you not be presented with a differing point of view? See, and to me, that's the rub. Even if there is error out there, and we know there's plenty of error out there online. I mean, I do my best to avoid it. I don't want to give you erroneous information. I don't want to lead anybody astray. But since I'm a human being and since I'm really not all that smart, uh, there's a good chance that I might mislead you. But to me, the, the obvious answer is the, then, then give you more facts or at least provide more opportunity for you to examine as much information as possible with the understanding that... If the truth is out there and if it's available, you are going to find it. That is if you are earnestly seeking the truth. Now, look, if we're just looking for things that will confirm our biases that we find most comfortable and make us feel smart and like, well, at least I'm part of the crowd. <laughs> um, you know, that's that's a very different thing from actually looking for truth, because truth sometimes is uncomfortable and sometimes it challenges our assumptions. And sometimes it requires us to make a very conscious decision as to whether or not we have to change how we think, how we live, how we uh, prioritize our lives. I still say that more truth is the cure, not less truth. And so I'm, I'm very 
wary when the uh, fact checkers, as it were, and, and there's usually a degree of sophistry that goes into what they're saying. Well, you know, Ben Swan's first video used old and outdated science. Well, show me why it's outdated. Don't just tell me that it's old. Show me. Provide me with the data that would, would supersede whatever that old data is. They can't do it, and they're not doing it. So rec- I recommend you check out his uh, his new video. Again, you'll find it on the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I put up new show notes every day. These will be the show notes for August 11th. And just see it for yourself. You can make up your own mind. You may still disagree with it. You might think, yeah, that Ben Swan, he's really full of it. I don't know. Maybe he is. But I'll let you make that choice because that's, that's how free people approach the dissemination of information. We don't try to put a muzzle on people and we don't try to put our hands over people's eyes or ears to prevent them from hearing or seeing things that may not jive with what we are most comfortable with. I'm totally comfortable with you uh, encountering absolute falsehood because I believe the fact that you're actually listening to this program indicates that you're probably someone who's looking for a little bit deeper truth. And hopefully that's something that we are sending your way in abundance. All right, coming up, I'm going to talk about what it's like to be an independent contractor. And I'm going to share some information with you about a very disturbing trend that is sweeping the country. California Act enacted AB5 here not so long ago. Uh, New Jersey is looking at enacting something similar. There's even talk at the federal level. Joe Biden, yes, the uh, erstwhile presidential candidate, is, uh, is saying he wants to enact this too. In the name of protecting these independent contractors. Well, as an independent contractor, I do not need their protection. And in fact, their so-called protection very likely will cost me what remains of the living that I'm already making. I've got that coming up just the other side of the break. want to mention uh, my sponsors. In fact, I want to take a moment here to talk about firesteel.com. I love one of the slogans on their website. And you go to firesteel.com, one of the first things you'll see is rediscover fire. Remember what a big deal it was for Tom uh, Hanks and Castaway? Right. He's on the desert island. He's stranded. And one of his most difficult things he had to do was try to create fire. Well, I'll tell you, the folks at firesteel.com have everything you need to make it not only easy to do their their spark starters are just incredible, but they're also affordable and they'll fit in your pocket. And they're not like matches. They're not like a lighter. You can actually take it on a plane. It's not a big deal. Firesteel.com. When you get there, look at the selection of products they have. When you make your purchase, put in my name, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at checkout, and they'll throw you a nice 10% discount. We'll be back after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Welcome to The Brian Hyde Show, where we gather to engage and to revel in wrong think on a daily basis. Two hours every day. Of course, we break it up into nice segments to make it easily digestible. It's available by podcast if that's uh, what suits your, uh, you know, your commute or your schedule better. But uh, it really is. It's a privilege to do this. I, I cannot tell you how blessed I feel to be the kind of guy who gets to slide behind a microphone a couple times a day and talk to interesting people and hold forth on the current events and issues of the day and hopefully do so in a way that's providing a little bit of light and knowledge for people who are looking for it. 
because in a lot of ways the world is is it's becoming a pretty dark and scary place. Well, I'm here to tell you there's there's a lot of goodness out there, and I'm grateful that you have found this platform, and I would encourage you, subscribe if you haven't already. I have a link provided for you in the show notes at uh, thebrianheidshow.com. I want to talk to you about what it is to be an independent contractor, because uh, just a little over a month and a half ago, I took a, a giant step of faith and stepped away from a very steady and comfortable income and into the world of being an entirely independent contractor. Now, some would say, well, that's a very foolish thing to do, Brian. Don't you know the economy is tanking right now? And, you know, you're just, you know, you're being dumb. Maybe, maybe. But there's something to be said for working as an independent contractor in the gig economy. Uh, there is a degree of autonomy that, that you just can't have as someone's employee. And so in in interest of remaining an independent contractor, that means uh, I'm working very hard. I'm looking to find sponsors for this program. I'm looking to find uh, clients for whom I do uh, custom audio production and things like that. And and it's slow going. And I'm going to confess something here that not very many people outside of my closest circle of friends know. But I've I've taken on a part-time job. And uh, you go to the local uh, convenience store, you might see my smiling face. Well, you'll see my eyes anyways, because uh, I'm required to wear a mask as part of my work. Now, for me, that's a that's a bit of a personal sacrifice. But I, I share this with you just to illustrate I'm not above doing whatever it takes to make things happen. And I'm not going to sit back and just wait. OK, man, everybody <laughs> support me. <laughs> I have to earn your support. But in the meantime, I'll do whatever it takes to to make that happen. And when I see bills like California's AB5, which sought to bring independent contractors like me and others, you know, freelance writers and podcasters and others, Uber drivers, for instance, under this umbrella that, well, we're going to treat them like employees, we want to convert them into employees, it didn't protect workers. In fact, if you've been following the stories out of California, people under AB5 found that the companies and the the individuals and organizations that hired their services or contracted for their services have instead eliminated those jobs. Why? Because they're being required to treat them as employees. They have to do all of the the paperwork. They have to do all of the the you know compliance with FICA, with uh, FISA and uh, not FISA. Sorry, FICA. Hello. And taxes and so forth. It's a it's a huge regulatory burden is my point. And so rather than take on new employees and have to consider, do we have to offer them benefits? How many hours are they working and so forth? It's easier to just say, now we're going to wash our hands. Now, New Jersey is considering something very similar. And there's a great article on reason dot com from Kim Caven. It's titled, I don't want to be anybody's employee. The thing that should get your attention is if whether you're an independent contractor or not, is that this is being talked about on the federal level as well. None other than Joe Biden saying, well, I just want to help these people, too. But the truth is the push to reclassify independent contractors is actually harming the very workers that it's supposed to help. And the the article here starts with the story of Linda Greenstein and Joe Lagana. Two New Jersey legislators who knew their seats on the Labor Committee exist at the pleasure of the state Senate president, Steve Sweeney, who I guess has a habit of removing his fellow Democrats from powerful positions if he doesn't like their votes. That's how you that's how you exercise a little control. 
Well, Greenstein and Lagana had one job on December 5th of last year, back a bill that Sweeney had sponsored, and they did that job. But when the moment came to cast their votes and move the bill out of committee, each came close to apologizing. And it's because it was a bill that would have reclassified many independent contractors as traditional salaried employees. And the bill was promoted as a way to protect low-wage workers whose companies were cheating them out of salaries and benefits. But Greenstein and Lagana just spent four hours listening to testimony from working mothers, senior citizens, African-Americans, Hispanics, and suburban women, key parts of their party's base, who said, this legislation will destroy my chosen career. In fact, the standing room only crowd that came to testify against that bill included teachers, writers, bakers, lawyers, musicians, photographers, and truck drivers. And Kim Caven says it included me. Because the bills threatened the stream of freelance writing and editing income that I'd spent the last 17 years building. Now, Greenstein told the crowd, we heard an amazing, what I consider an amazing amount of opposition, adding that the bill was the most confusing she's encountered in two years, I'm sorry, two decades rather, in the New Jersey legislature. She ultimately voted yes, but she acknowledged for the public record that the legislation needed work, saying, quote, I think that somebody used the term unintended consequences, and it may be that's what's going on here. Now, Kim Caven says state and local or federal lawmakers rather across America need to understand what those blue state Democrats learned that day. And the Democratic Party needs to amend its labor platform accordingly. The debate they were having in New Jersey shortly before COVID-19 struck will be of critical importance for the entire American economy if we intend to climb out of the post-pandemic economic wreckage. And with businesses failing right and left, you need to pay attention to this. The Democratic Party was going to roll out bills like this all across the country, hoping to compel companies to hire more people as employees with benefits instead of as independent contractors who get cash-only pay. That push started in California, where Governor Gavin Newsom signed its version of the legislation, AB5, into law back in September of last year. Similar legislation was introduced around the same time in New Jersey and New York. On the federal level, the same lines were added to the proposed Protecting the Right to Organize or PRO Act. But the rollout didn't go as planned. When AB5 took effect back in January in California, you didn't see hundreds of companies convert these independent contractors into employees. Instead, those independent contractors lost work they loved, sometimes ending up without any income at all. Truckers, writers, photographers, and others filed multiple lawsuits against the state, and more than 30 cleanup or repeal bills were introduced in Sacramento. Even AB5's original sponsor, introduced a bill to try to fix some of the damage her law had done. Gee, that sounds like a resounding success, wouldn't you say? Well, spooked by the results they saw in California, apparently New Jersey lawmakers ended up withholding their support. The legislation stalled. In New York, which at least had the benefit of watching California and New Jersey go first, there was enough concern about pushback that Governor Andrew Cuomo, instead of giving full-throated support to that state's version, tried to create a task force to study the issue, but it failed to materialize before the pandemic kicked in. But at the federal level, Democrats are still clinging to the original playbook, and presumptive presidential nominee Joe Biden has endorsed the idea, tweeting both his support for AB5 and saying he'll make a federal version of the law, a federal version, rather, the law of the land if he wins the White House. He says, California has paved the way to a better future for workers. 
And by the way, it has the support of other prominent members of Congress, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and most Democrats in the House of Representatives, who all say that their stance is about protecting workers, even though California's example clearly shows these kind of regulations don't help the workers. They cripple huge swaths of the middle class, denying people flexibility, denying them the cash flow that they need. And flexibility and cash flow are going to be as important as anything when COVID-19 forces a lot of us to change the way we work. So I'm going to let you check out the rest of the article for yourself. I strongly recommend it. Um, again, it'll be in the show notes at the com. Look, I'm not encouraging you that, well, you should be trying to become an independent contractor. I really believe this is something that's going to become a reality for more and more of us. And I hope I'm on the, the crest of this wave rather than catching the tail end of it. But I'm confident I've made a good decision. Please, politicians, and don't screw it up for me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. And once again, I'm going to encourage you, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, please go to the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. These are the show notes for August 11th. Nope, make that August 12th, 2020. And uh, by all means, subscribe. Listen, if you're so inclined, there is a, a donate button there as well. If you would like to become a monthly supporter, even if you can just do it at one time, Every little bit helps, and I sure appreciate it. I also appreciate my sponsors like Firesteel.com and also the uh, Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage for helping to make this show possible. So here's a question for you, something I want you to think about. How important is your reputation? Now, this is kind of an interesting question when you ask it in the age of social media, right? Because uh, I, I think reputation becomes interchangeable with branding. Well, welcome to the Brian Hyde experience. And, you know, my branding is this and it's that. And I'm not telling you that it's a bad thing, you know, to, to build a brand or to, to build an online presence. I mean, what is it most young people want to be today? I want to be an online influencer or a social media influencer. And some of them do extremely well. I mean, who knew? But James Walpole has a really powerful piece on why character matters in the here and now. But it also matters greatly to descendants that you will never meet. Listen to this. He says, I have to admit I was a little disappointed when I learned my line of farming ancestors was interrupted by the presence of a banker. Now, he says, I mean, no offense to the wonderful, hardworking, valuable members of the banking community. But this Walpole of the 1800s threw a cog into my romantic historical conception of our family as agrarian types. But he says, it turns out the story was a bit more complicated than that. If I remember my historical findings aright, he was not a fat cat, but he was a highly competent bank teller, detector of counterfeit currency, and, quote, reputed one of the foremost of the banking officials of the city. He lived and worked in Mobile, Alabama, before returning out of a sense of loyalty to place to Charleston, South Carolina. And most importantly, he was noted for his strict business integrity and his courtesy and the community suffers great loss in his death. Now, James Walpole says, It gave me a lift to know that this man, as complicated and flawed as he must have been, was considered a decent and honorable man in his time. 
Now, he says, lest you argue that this is an irrational thing to be happy about, just consider the difference with, with just consider the difference which having a dissolute father has versus having an upright one. The same difference applies with grandfathers, great grandfathers, great greats, and so on, though to a lesser degree. Character flows down to the present day in both nature and nurture, so it's important for people to have things to prize about their forefathers. And he says, all this is a reminder that your character may one day mean a lot to some kid who decides to be curious about his family history. And his final words are, live well. Okay, there's a time where I would have just shrugged this off as, yeah, yeah, okay, that's, you know, neat. But uh, anyway, uh, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the show? No, it's, this is something that has become more and more important to me because I have a son who happens to be very dialed into family history. And I know for some people, that's like, oh, genealogy, you know, shields are up, the eyes glaze over. I have learned more about my family history. And and what's really neat is uh, because I was adopted and as I have connected with my birth parents, I'm learning more and more about my extended family history, my genetic family history as well. And it's all because my son just has this incredible drive to learn about this. Now, you know, some would call this the spirit of Elijah. You know, that uh, the hearts of the children will be turned to the fathers and the fathers to the children. It's right there in the Bible. But uh, but I see a, a fascinating connection. And I want to know. I want to know about uh, what kind of people were they. I, I was uh, I was at least mildly amused when I connected with my birth father. You know, I had a lot of questions about, well, tell me about, you know, your upbringing. Tell me about your ancestry and so forth. And, and you know, fortunately, uh, my, my birth my biological dad had the chance to travel a lot. He was an academic and just got to travel the world. Um, one of the things he told me was one of our ancestors was actually tried for piracy in England. So, yeah, we've, we've got a few black sheep in the family here, a few, the, a few uh, not so, so nice people. But uh, it, it's just incredible to learn about their stories. Um, I think I've told you before, uh, my son pointed out uh, through, through my adoptive family I am the third great-grandson of a man by the name of James Hyde. James Hyde joined the Continental Army at the age of 15, and by age 16, he was serving under General Washington. And he fought in the Revolutionary War. He was with Washington at Valley Forge. He was with Washington through a number of, of very pivotal battles, and I think most impressive to me, he was there when Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown. Now, that may seem like, oh, okay, so much esoteric, you know, historical stuff, but I like to believe that there, there is that connection. And, and um, I don't want to sound irrationally proud or, or sound like, well, and I'm riding on the coattails of these great Americans because, you know, they've done things that I could never do. It inspires me to live up to my potential because there are individuals like that in my family history. And I guess the thing that I'm asking you to think about in, uh, in James Walpole's message, what does it mean to be a decent, up, uh, a decent, upright, and honorable person in your time? Look, you're not going to be perfect. So I'm not talking about, can I create the most whitewashed you know, version of my history that uh, leaves out all the bad and only focuses on the good? Everybody's flawed. But some people manage to 
by power of example and just by, by power of being a decent person, shine. And the ripples that they send out last a lot longer than their actual mortal existence. And so I think it's, it's important that, that we be concerned with what kind of a person am I right now in the here and now? Am I a decent and honorable person? And I'm gonna I'm gonna take this in a direction that I hope doesn't to uh, you know totally pull the the rug out from under what I'm trying to to say here. Many years ago, I read a writer by the name of Vin Suprinowitz, who was commenting on, well, you have to vote for this candidate or you have to vote for that candidate. Um, you know, th- this election has been so so wild. This latest election cycle, I really haven't seen the "you have no choice." You have to do this or you have to do that. I felt like we had much more of a choice before us in 2016. But when someone tells you you have to vote Republican, you have to vote Democrat, don't you dare vote your conscience. Vin Suprinowitz said, "Let me take you back and just ask you: if you were in, uh, say, the Weimar Republic." And you were told, look, you have to either support the National Socialists or you have to support the Bolsheviks. Who's it going to be? He asks, would you have the courage to say, I wouldn't support either one of them? And then he really drove it home by asking, what would you rather tell your children and grandchildren and maybe great grandchildren as they're gathered around your deathbed as you are getting ready to, to leave this mortal existence? Would you tell him, well, I picked the one that was the least of two evils (laughs) and hoped for the best? Or would you tell him, I didn't vote for either one of them. I would not support either one of them. And I was hated and I was shouted at and I was spat upon and I was beat up and maybe I was thrown into prison for not doing so. But it was the right thing to do. And if I had to do it again, I would simply to show that not everybody fell for their lines. Would you rather take that approach or would you rather tell him, yeah, I held my nose. I voted for the lesser of two evils. Now, I'm not trying to tell you how to vote. I'm just telling you that uh, when, when the end of our lives come, the one thing that goes with us, the one thing that will meet us there at that gateway and then march through it with us is our conscience. And all the other stuff, all the awards, all the money, the toys, the things we accumulate, the experiences we had aren't going to matter as much as whether or not you and your conscience are on good terms with each other when that moment comes. I know what my answer would be. I leave it up to you to determine what yours would be. But if you want to be the kind of person who has a positive impact right now, today, when it's really needed, when we need people to to live by, by the power of example and show others that there is still goodness in this world, that there is truth and there is light and there are things that you can count on. I promise you, that kind of thing will also bless those who follow in your footsteps as they learn about you. And hopefully you're doing yourself and them a favor by keeping some kind of a journal. I know not everybody aspires to be a writer. Truth be told, I didn't like to write. At least early on in my life, I didn't. Now I love it. But when I write, I like to write with an eye towards how would this come across to descendants who I will never meet and will I be giving them something of value to consider as I write this alright I'm pretty introspective but I feel good about it we're going to take a quick break we'll be back right after this this 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okie dokie, we are back and welcome once again, wrong thinkers of all shapes and sizes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. You can access the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Look for the notes for August 12th of 2020, and you'll find all the links to every essay, every article that I've referenced. You'll find links to our sponsors. There's also a nice little subscribe link right down there at the bottom of the notes. And if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please consider doing so. Please become a fellow wrong thinker. I think you'll find yourself in very good company. So in in the vein of the the last uh, segment where I was talking about uh, James Walpole and his excellent article about uh, your reputation and what it will mean to those who will follow in your footsteps, the ones who you'll never likely meet. I came across an essay from James Bovard, and I've been reading this guy's writings for, I don't know, I'm guessing 20 plus years now. And he has an essay that was recently published on Mises.org, Why I Write. And I just thought I would share a couple of excerpts from this with you because this illustrates how someone finds life purpose, finds that sense of life mission, and then pursues it to the best of their ability. And and I'm not suggesting that you have to be a writer in order to do this, but I'm going to suggest that uh, every single one of us has the ability to, to have impact and to have influence. In fact, tomorrow I'm having a wonderful guest join me, uh, Kurt Mercadante who specializes in helping people uh, find how to maximize their influence. He has such a positive message, and I hope you enjoy it. We're going to talk with him on tomorrow's show. Very, very excited to introduce you to him and, and, and his particular way of seeing the world. It's, it's, it's seriously one of the best things you're going to encounter all week. Let's talk about James Bovard. And he, he just he's explaining here why he does what he does. And, and I, I think I should preface this with the understanding James Bovard is not only a very talented writer, but he is he's exceptionally clear in his writing, which some people might say as blunt. But I don't mean that he's a polemicist who just, you know, tries to write to inflame people. I just mean this guy speaks truth in such a way that uh, some people lose their minds when they read it. They're not used to not having sugar coating or, you know, something that's trying to appeal to their prevailing biases. And, and that's what I love about him. Bovard says it straight. He just gives you the facts and, you know, it's up to you what to do with them. And a lot of people fly off the handle because they're just not ready for certain facts. But he talks about how he was born in Iowa, raised in the mountains of Virginia, attended Virginia Tech sporadically before dropping out to try his luck in writing. He says at some point in the late 1970s, individual liberty became his highest political value. And he resolved to do what he could to defend it. Because he says, I'd seen the federal government sabotage the currency, ravage Southeast Asia with an unjust war, and tumble into disgrace with the Watergate scandal. Then the pratfalls of the Carter administration, following the depravity of the Johnson and Nixon administrations, spurred a sense of impending political and economic collapse. He says, after moving to the Washington area in 1980, I was appalled to see what passed for good writing inside the Beltway. The prevailing standards seem designed to make magazine and newspaper subscribers regret ever learning to read. Many articles resembled a numbing four-hour Politburo speech. Voiceless prose with low-watt righteous drone was the tacit ideal. Go Team Go was the epitome of literary excellence. 
He says there was nothing to learn from the vast majority of pieces except which side of a dispute the author favored. Alternatively, some writers prided themselves on being perpetually overwrought, a blight that reached epidemic levels after the election of Donald Trump. So James Boulevard says, if I was expecting mental stimulation in Washington, I came to the wrong place. Political thought consists of making accusations or making excuses and not much more. He says D.C.'s mental currents usually only let the froth rise to the top. Any idea not immediately profitable to one of the political parties or major interest groups usually sinks without a trace. As French essayist Paul Valéry warned, at every step, politics and freedom of mind exclude each other. And James Bovard says, I was astounded at the paltry evidence used in Washington controversies. Policy clashes were dominated by competing groups of know-nothings or know-almost-nothings. Combatants seemed unable to comprehend anything that happened prior to the most, congressional, to the most recent congressional recess. Perusing federal audit reports from prior years was considered akin to excavating an ancient Egyptian tomb. Because few people bothered becoming well-informed, he says the city was easy prey for intellectual con artists. According to politicians and their media collaborators, government is practically a hovercraft floating along and gently guiding and assisting people on the road of life. But he says the state that I had met on my life's pathways was often oppressive, incompetent, and venal. He says, I saw no profit in delusions about the benevolence of officialdom. Instead, I realized that idealism on liberty demands brutal realism on political power. This is why he tends to offend people <laughs> for all the right reasons. A fanatic is a man that does what he thinks the Lord would do if he knew the facts of the case, according to 19th century humorist Finley Peter Dunn. Similarly, James Bovard says, I assumed that if folks only knew the facts of the matter about the government, they would rise up and demand an end to the injustices they suffer daily. Now, he asks, did I presume that the political truth would set Americans free? Well, maybe I wasn't that naive, but... He says, I still thought that damning facts would wake up enough Americans to stop government from destroying everyone's freedom. Floundering programs survived in part because critics' prose was often more impenetrable than a federal register notice. He says, I savored the challenge of translating federal idiocy from tangled jargon into plain English. My goal was, not, my goal was to write, not that the reader may understand, but that he must understand, as the ancient Roman rhetorician Quintilian advised. If I could lucidly explain government shenanigans, perhaps people would finally recognize how political and bureaucratic racketeering were leading the nation astray. Now, he says, some editors appreciated how I scavenged up hard facts to buttress hardline views. Spending time in federal agency libraries, rifling through their archives, he says, I saw how government power was stockpiled by lie after lie. And while the specific deceits vanished into the memory hole, politicians' prerogatives continually grew. I saw that time and time again, early opponents foresaw and forecast how new programs would crash and burn, but their alarms were ignored. The systems seemingly conspired to bury all evidence of its debacles. He says, in ancient Greece, the famous cynic philosopher Diogenes scoffed at a rival who had practiced philosophy for such a long time and yet never disturbed anyone. He says, I had the same view on writing, though admittedly I've been biased toward raising a ruckus since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. But in Washington, much of what passes for journalism is simply shilling for Leviathan. It was impossible to overstate the servility of reporters proud to serve as stenographers with amnesia. 
<laughs> that is the best description. He says, in contrast, I was one of those Philistines who gave no credence to an agency's mission statement. After I wrote a piece in 1983 lambasting a new program to lavish studies on businesses purportedly to train workers, an assistant secretary of labor denounced my callously cynical concept of the American free enterprise system and wailed that Bovard was determined to disparage all government efforts without giving President Reagan's reforms a chance. He says, actually, I was happy to disparage all government's efforts doomed to repeat past failures. He says, I learned how to smell a policy rat and relished hounding and pounding wayward federal agencies and vexing scoundrels of all political parties and creeds. If you can make government a laughing stock, then the battle is half won. As H.L. Mencken quipped, one horse laugh is worth 10,000 syllogisms. From a federal jobs program that built an artificial rock for rock climbers to practice on, to federally paid artists who groped each other's naked bodies to recognize male and female characteristics, to AmeriCorps recruits releasing masses of colored balloons to fight child molesting. He says, I showcased rollicking absurdities whenever, wherever I could find them. Now, he goes on here. He talks about a few more of his successes, but I'm going to cut to the chase here. As he talks about uh, the more oppressive government became, the more he felt he had a duty to write. And he says, over the years, federal chieftains have provided my favorite accolades, including denunciations of my work by the Secretary of Labor, the Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, the Postmaster General, and the Chiefs of Transportation Security Administration, International Trade Commission, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Drug Enforcement Administration, and Federal Emergency Management Agency. Wow. That's a guy who got noticed. He says, happily, I continue to find some editors undaunted by the rage my articles sometimes evoke. I continue to despise politicians because most people can thrive as long as they're not pillaged by their rulers. He says, one of my early lodestars was Edmund Burke's maxim, people never give up their liberties but under some delusion. But what if the media fosters delusions that lull people into ever greater submission? And he asks, and, and did I greatly overestimate how many people would make any effort to defend their own rights? Either way, he says it's vital to maintain an intellectual skirmish line against Leviathan's worst excesses and boldest offenses. As long as we keep writing for freedom, he says, we are winning. Politicians will never be able to outlaw the spirit of liberty. It's a marvelous essay. You'll find it in the show notes. Please check it out for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.